Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. O glorious Father, that you are indeed righteous, and right is your rules and your law. You have appointed your word in your righteousness, and in all faithfulness we have all of your promises. Lord, we pray that zeal for Your Word would consume us. Lord, that those that read Your Word and forget it are like those seeds that are planted that grow and then walk away and wither as the world rises around them. Lord, we pray that we would not forget Your Word and Your law. You would help us to be able to understand all the glorious promises, even the promise of the resurrection of the dead. Lord, we pray we would love and cherish your word and your law as we love and cherish you. pray that you would help us this morning with the work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. We would seek to be able to glorify you and understand all of your glorious promises. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 15, verses 42 to 47. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Summoning the centurion, he asked him, whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph brought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Oseus saw where he was laid. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Often when we ask the question, what is Christianity about? What is the vital parts of Christianity? What is it that we believe as the core and essence? Where is the vital part what we confess and believe. Now, many of us would say that Jesus died for our sins. This is very true. I think this is a great summary of what the Gospel entails. It speaks of our sinfulness and Christ's death and atonement. But often that's all that we do to be able to summarize especially what Jesus came to be able to do. What His earthly ministry was all about. But it's not the only part of Jesus' earthly ministry. The burial of Jesus Christ is a vital part of what we do and believe, and especially how it is vital to us as well. And that's what we'll look at this morning. 
one of the vital parts is that you see in Acts chapter 13. Paul is preaching. He begins in verse 26. Brothers, sons of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, filled them by condoning, condemning Him. And though they found Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. When he, they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. Here is thus a short message of what we have been studying in the Gospel of Mark. That those chief priests and rulers, and Paul points out that although they read of all of these things in the Old Testament, in the utterances of the prophets, every single Sabbath they did not recognize Him. But yet they did each of these parts to be able to fulfill what is written. We pointed out even before that, that he was accused of blasphemy and, and under the Jewish law, blasphemy deserved death by stoning. But it's not through stoning that Jesus is dead, uh, killed, but he is crucified just to be able to fulfill what is written in the prophets. But Paul here points out, after they carried out all that they did, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. The burial is mentioned in all four Gospel accounts. Christ's execution is one of a criminal, but yet the change happens. He is no longer treated as a criminal in His burial. One historian explains, Tacius, that a person legally condemned forfeited his estate and was debarred from burial. He was a criminal. He, he should not have been buried. But the practice was that they would often leave people's bodies upon the cross to be eaten by birds. And even for the Jews, to be eaten by birds was then to be seen as divine curse. But you notice how just as he, was, he wasn't stoned to death, he was crucified, so too Christ said that he would be buried and the third day he would rise again. There's a change. A path which seems to be the next step is altered. Now sometimes the Romans would take a body down and give it to the family, particularly on the eve of a festival. They don't want to be celebrating something and have the smell of dead bodies. But Christ's burial is important to the Gospel message. It's important because if Christ was not raised from the dead, specifically that if He was not dead, then we preach a foolish message. If He did not die, then He did not die for our sins. Also raises a good question. How can believers know that He died? That He was dead? Today in this passage, we see some very important parts that help us to understand this. 
before we look specifically at this, pra- uh, this passage, we need to understand the practices of burial in this day. Jesus had breathed His last. His lungs were still. His once beating heart is now stopped. No blood was sent through His veins. No signals were sent to His brain. Jesus was right when He said before that the Son of Man has come to be able to suffer many things. He has indeed suffered many things through what we have read to this point. The chief priest, he was handed over to the chief priest, condemned to death, then delivered to the Gentiles, mocked him, spat on him, flogged him, and then killed him. We're told that it was evening on the day of preparation, the day the Jews would ensure that everything done was done before the Sabbath commenced. We need to understand something about Jewish custom. When we speak of burial, we often have what we think of burial is today. And that is that often when someone passes away, they go to the funeral home, they're embalmed or um, treated, and then they're placed in a coffin. We have this celebration, the funeral, we we take this day, we place the body in a coffin, we put the coffin in the, the grave, we fill the grave back up with dirt. This is a process of maybe a week. The, the grief continues throughout the rest of a lifetime of the, life, the ones who love it. But often this is a short span of time. However, the practice in these days was quite different. If we think that burial is like this, then we have a, a wrong understanding. During these days, the Jewish custom was that after someone had died, they were prepared for burial. And not in the sense of embalming. But the eyes of the deceased were closed. Their mouth bound up. The corpse was washed and anointed not to be able to preserve the body, Actually, just to be able to cloak the smell. They would wrap the body in a a cloth, in a shroud, and they would place it in a tomb. And the tomb was not a grave, per se. It was a hole in a rock. And in that hole in the rock, there would be shells where these bodies would be laid. And they would seal up this space. The tomb would look different depending on the person's wealth. But this is where there's a difference between how we practice burial today and what burial looked like back then. When they were placed in a tomb, this was not their place of final resting what they would do is they'd place their body in their tomb to be able to let their flesh decay, corrupt, you might say. And then when their body was placed in the tomb, they would wait a period of about a year where they would go in sometimes and be able to, again, cloak the smell. But what they would be left with is then the bones of the person. They would then take the bones of the person and then go put them more into this uh, tomb, we might say. Again, probably an ossuary is probably a better 
term for that understanding. Then what they would do is they would reuse the shelf. Use it again. But the issue is that Jesus died and they did not have enough time to be able to prepare the body. You think about how much you would need to be able to prepare the body to be able to cloak the smell for about a year. They had enough time to be able to take the body down from the cross, but not enough time to be able to do that before the Sabbath had come. So this is where we find ourselves in this passage. With that background, let's have a look more in detail here. There are many aspects of the Gospel message that appear in every single Gospel. And one man, in particular, is mentioned by all of the Gospel authors. This is the man that we meet in this passage this morning, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, we'll begin by understanding where he's from. This is the simple part. It tells us that he is from Arimathea. The difficult part is we don't know where Arimathea is. The best answer, I think, that you can have is in 1 Samuel 1, one, Rama Ayam Zophim speaks of where Hannah and her husband is from. And the Septuagint renders this Arimathaeum. This is the best guess is that he's uh, from this place mentioned in 1 Samuel 1 1. But Mark tells us three important things about Joseph of Arimathea. This starts in verse 43. First, he tells us that he's a well-respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin. Now, this is the council that condemned Jesus to death. So You think of all these members on these council, and then you have Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus is another member you might know. Now, some have mentioned that Joseph of Arimathea's concern is not about Jesus at all. He is concerned about the law. The law gives specific instructions how someone was to be handled after they were hung on a tree in Deuteronomy 21. So some people say that Joseph of Arimathea was not concerned about Jesus, but he was concerned about the law. So the reasons why he does these things is about the law. However, I think this is a misunderstanding because Mark gives us a second thing that we know about Joseph of Arimathea. That it says that he himself was looking for the kingdom of God. Now this can have two different meanings. First is that a broad sense that he was anticipating the coming of the Christ as promised in the Bible. That he was just looking for the Christ, that he doesn't necessarily understand who Jesus was. That's the broad sense. But specifically, I don't think that lines up with the other gospel accounts. The other gospel accounts actually says that he's a disciple. Although they mention that he's secretly a disciple, he is still a disciple.
Although I have no connection between these two verses, I think it's a good hypothesis. You see, remember the man in Mark chapter 12 who comes up to Jesus and says uh, about the law, the greatest of the commandments. There's a comment that Mark makes there in Mark chapter 12 about this man who comes before this uh, Jesus and asks this question. One of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with one another. So, there is a loose hypothesis that this Joseph of Arimathea is the person who asked about the great commandment. It's a hypothesis, nonetheless. But he is not far from the kingdom of God. That we see that, particularly in the Gospel of John, I think the Gospel of John shows that uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are both disciples that eventually come into light at the end of what they're doing. But Mark tells us one last thing about jo- Joseph of Arimathea that he went and stood before Pilate to be able to ask to have the body of Jesus. Now Mark's Gospel is the only Gospel that gives us this account. Mark accurately, I think, depicts it as that he has courage. He took courage and went to Pilate. Joseph of Arimathea shows a lot of boldness in this step. In this, he has everything to lose and nothing to gain in the eyes of the world. His reputation on the council would be in question. His whole career on the line. He is not only going to go and speak to the person who condemned this person and ask for his body to be able to show him respect, but he's also then going to speak with the enemy. The person who they've had a tremendous amount of conflict with. But Joseph of Arimathea comes and stands before Pilate and requests the body of Jesus. But also not only politic, uh, in his career, but even just think about Pilate. What Jesus is condemned for by Pilate. He's treated as, as someone who commits treason, insurrection, traded for Bar- uh, Barabbas. And now he goes and stands before this person and asking for his body. Again, it takes great courage. Joseph of Arimathea's side. But one point we need to be reminded of. Many people believe that the Gospel of Mark is written to those living in Rome that are facing great Roman persecution. And here, Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned to be able to go stand before a leader and take boldness and courage to be able to ask for the body of Jesus. Now as he goes and stands before Pilate, we find out that the death is confirmed. Pilate's surprised that Jesus had passed away so quickly. He summons a centurion to go and confirm his death. Now many theories have been given by liberal scholars that try and account for the Gospel account. 
One of the ways is they do it two ways. First, if you can deny he died, then you deny the resurrection. If Jesus didn't die, then there's no resurrection. The other way is to work the other way around. Jesus died, but then the body of Jesus was stolen. No resurrection. Or the, 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 the disciples all had this hallucination. All of these things are, uh, can be refuted. We can talk about that in another point. But some seek to be able to deny his death. Now, many of the people that I think deny his death seek to be able to just apply that people in the first century didn't know what death was. They didn't know how to be able to check what death was. They assume we know more than we did back then. Now, granted, we know a lot more. Technology has advanced. But one thing is pretty consistent throughout all of human history. People can know what a dead body is. Dead body doesn't breathe. Dead body doesn't have a beating heart. But even since rise since the fall, the death has been upon humans. And they assume that they can understand what happened 2,000 years ago better than the people who wrote about it 2,000 years ago. But I think what they're doing is ultimately what C.S. Lewis says is cultural snobbery. They just treat everyone else as imbeciles, foolish, not understanding that we know. We know what really happened. But the fact is that Jesus went through a brutal beating, a flogging, crucifixion, under the supervision of trained professionals. This centurion is not some intern that is unpaid worker that has no idea what he is doing. The centurion would have worked his ways through the ranks, has a hundred men underneath him. No one gets to a position like that, especially as a Roman soldier in war. You can't fake your way through that. You can't fake your way through battle. And this centurion comes and be able to check this body. That Jesus was in fact dead. Now the Romans had perfected this technique. This is not something they were just trying out in a new manner. This is something they'd performed over centuries. And throughout all of the history, there's no account that I'm aware of of anybody surviving a Roman execution of crucifixion. No evidence whatsoever. So to assume that Jesus somehow was able to make His way through the flogging, when the Bible clearly spells out that it was not done in love, they were mocking him, spitting on him, treating him like a criminal. And even in the gospel accounts, we see many people who watched the crucifixion, saw his resurrection. We see even here the account of two people who had close contact with Jesus' body. One of them, the Roman centurion, who went and examined his body to be able to make sure he was dead. Now, if your leader, Pilate, asks you if someone is dead, you might want to go check it twice, right? 
You don't want to come back with false information. And here this Roman centurion goes, who has been surrounded by death. This is probably his job. And he comes back and confirms what has been said. That Jesus did in fact die. Now if you had two people, one who was there, who was a trained professional, who had close contact with the body, or a scholar 2,000 years ago, uh, 2,000 years later, with some hypothesis, who were you going to trust? I'm going to go with a Roman centurion, who's a trained professional who actually saw the body. And even Mark's account points this out. Although in a subtle way, Mark's account clearly spells out that Pilate grants the corpse to Joseph of Arimathea. There's no denying that the Bible teaches, and I think the Bible is accurate, that Jesus died. And then we have the burial place. So Joseph was granted the corpse by Pilate. We're told another important, another factor that Mark points out, again, this close personal contact that he might have had with Joseph of Arimathea later in time. Joseph of Arimathea purchased the linen to be able to wrap around Jesus. We're also told that he went and took Jesus' body off the cross. This would make Joseph of Arimathea unclean. He would not be able to celebrate the rest of the Passover feast, which would go on for a week. He was unclean because he touched the body of a corpse. We see yet another close personal contact. You don't bury someone you think is alive. Joseph of Arimathea took him down from the cross. He placed his body in a linen cloth. And then he goes and places his body in the tomb. The human body which was hypostatically united to the second person of the Trinity, lay lifeless and dead. And we're told something in the Bible about this specific moment. And that is that Jesus' body did not see corruption. We're told this in Acts chapter 2, 13, Psalm 16. The difference between Lazarus And Jesus, one of the differences, is that when Lazarus was, uh, they rolled the stone away from Lazarus' tomb. One of the greatest things in translation, the King James says that it stinketh. When they rolled that after four days, his body had a smell to it. However, Jesus' body did not. It did not see corruption. Westminster Divines explains that he was not abandoned in Sheol or Hades as some would be explained, but he explains that, that, that his flesh did not see corruption. This is what they mean when they say he descended into hell. But now the body is placed in a tomb and the tomb is sealed shut. And three, there for Jesus' body laid in darkness. 
Christ's burial is another testimony of, of His death, that He truly did die. Acts 13, we read it before, that He was taken down from the tree and laid in the tomb. Even in the Gospel of Matthew, the, the leaders show a concern about what's going to happen to Jesus' body. Matthew chapter 27. Jesus continued in this state of death, under the power of death until the third day. Christ's burial is our baptism. We are baptized into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead, that we should be raised with Him through faith. That we might walk in the newness of life, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 6. Christ's burial is crucial because it shows that Christ actually and truly died. But why does this matter? To be able to look back in history and be able to see that someone died, it's a good historical fact. But why does this matter? Why does Paul say that this is of first importance? That he was dead, buried, and rose again according to Scripture, as he puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The reason why this is very important, that is, if he wasn't dead, there wouldn't need to be a reason to bury him. And if he wasn't buried, then there was no need for him to be raised from the dead. Now, this might seem simple, but it is so vital to what we teach and believe. And also, even to us and our bodies. Paul continues to, play, to explain in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is futile. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ. Whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then, those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are people most to be pitied. Paul says is if there's no resurrection from the dead, then there's no resurrection of the dead from Christ. If Christ has not been dead, then we are dead in our trespasses. There's no hope of what is to come. That I, what I do, is in vain. My preaching is in vain and your faith is futile. There's no purpose. Not only that, we're liars. We're misrepresenting God. 
we would still be in our sins. As I said before, what's the vital part? Christ died for our sins. If He did not die, then we, we are still in our sins. And also, then He explains something that should send sivers down our spine. Christ was not raised from the dead. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have There's no hope of the resurrection to come. Christ was not dead, then He was not raised. A person whose heart is beating does not need to be resuscitated. All that we have, Paul explains, if this is true, there's no resurrection of the dead, then is this life right now. A funeral would be a final goodbye. A coffin closed would mean that we would never see our loved ones again. Our life is just a meaningless blimp to be lived and fulfilled right now because this is all we have to offer. But our only hope, Paul would say, is that we have life right now, today. And he says that we should be very pity. All we live for is for nothing. All we preach is, is in vanity. All of our faith, all of our prayers are meaningless. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying hypothetically if Christ was not raised from the dead. Not only is he saying the resurrection is important, he's saying death of Jesus is important. His burial is important. But here, in Mark, we see that he did die. It is this account of trained professionals, unbiased people, recording that Jesus died. I love small words in the Bible, and one of my favorite words in the Bible three letters long that flows throughout that I'm so happy it does. That word is but. You almost rejoice every time you see it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul continues down this line of thought in verse 20, he said, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Whereas by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruit. And all those who are coming, those who belong to Christ. This truth that Paul seeks and points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is here in this passage in Mark chapter 15. It is not only that Christ died, but that He was buried. His death was watched by three women who sat there from a distance watching Him breathe His last. They were there at His death. They were there at His burial. In verse 47 it says they saw where He was laid. They were also there at His resurrection as 
we'll see in chapter 16. These women watched his death, burial, and resurrection. This Roman officer, this professional executioner, confirmed his death. He was buried by a man who took his dead body off the tree, who buried it in the tomb. Who risked everything to be able to do so. We have all the more reason to rejoice. The great certainty that Christ has been raised from the dead. We can rejoice because of Christ's resurrection, we have a hope of a resurrection. That when our bodies are placed in the grave, that will not be our final resting place. We rejoice when we go to a funeral. We go so not without grief. We have a great rejoicing. This is not a goodbye forever. But although the loved one is placed in a tomb, if they are united to Christ, they will share in the same resurrection. My favorite hymn speaks of this assurance in which we have. Abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before thy closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. Our comfort is found in life and death, that we are not our own. That we are bought body and soul by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That if we belong with Him and He he abides with us, then we will be raised as He was. As Paul puts it later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to Him in prayer. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give You thanks and praise that even as we read through this dark, depressing chapter of the burial of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we know that this is not the end. The fact is that Christ was raised from the dead. That we have the hope of this resurrection to come. Let us see this light in the gloomiest of days. Let us share in this hope in the darkest of moments. Let us trust in Christ as we say goodbye to the loved ones around us. We ourselves may be placed in a grave. We pray that we look forward to this last day, the resurrection of our body, our souls united back with our body. We see with Christ the resurrection as the first fruits this victory over death. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. 
Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.